Welcome to What's the Law Say? Legal Aid of West Virginia's podcast. I am Clint Adams, Legal Director of Legal Aid of West Virginia. And in this episode, we will be discussing guardianships, conservatorships, and powers of attorneys. As a reminder, we love to start our program with a disclaimer because we lawyers don't want to claim anything, so we disclaim stuff. Legal Aid of West Virginia is a nonprofit law firm providing legal services and advocacy to vulnerable West Virginians. This podcast is presented to bring relevant and current information. All the information is current at the time this podcast is published. Our guest attorneys are licensed to practice law in the state of West Virginia, and this information relates only to the law in the state of West Virginia and is provided for informational purposes only. While our host and guest are attorneys, the information presented is legal information and would not take the place of an attorney-client relationship. You should speak with an attorney about your specific situations. As noted, I am Clint Adams. I am your host, mostly because Brad Paisley is really hard to get a hold of his agent, and he probably would be more expensive than I am. Um, but in this episode, we will be talking with Jackie Schwaben. Jackie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Clint. Thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure to visit with you. Why don't you tell everybody um, what you do at Legal Aid of West Virginia? Sure. So I'm Jackie Schwaben, and I am the supervising attorney for our Behavioral Health Advocacy Project, which provides advocacy for children and adults um, with mental health or behavioral health concerns. And we provide advocacy in the schools and in the community and also in the two state-run psychiatric facilities. So you're dealing then with both inpatient and outpatient people who have mental health issues. Is that correct? That is correct. And uh, children as well as adults, correct? Children and adults. We start at birth and we go all the way through adulthood. Now, Jackie, in prior broadcasts, we've talked a little bit about children um, and getting guardianship of a child. People think about your parent or guardian to fill out school paperwork, to take people to the doctor, things of that nature. Um, is, is it a similar process uh, if we're talking about a guardianship of an adult? So the process itself isn't similar, but the concepts that come out of it are very similar. You know, you're a natural guardian if you're the parent of a child. Um, if you're getting guardianship over a child, you're asking the court uh, in general for permission to be that person's guardian. It is in that aspect, it is similar for an adult guardianship where a person is asking the court to be appointed guardian over an adult uh, to help make decisions for that adult. And so we're on the same page when we talk about an adult, we're talking about anybody over the age of 18, correct? Anybody over the age of 18, yes. So once even if a, a child has special needs, for example, um, and, and is unable to make decisions, when they turn 18, then this would be a process that would that would be applicable there. Is that, do I understand that correctly? That is absolutely correct. You know, as soon as somebody turns 18, even if they have special needs, even if they have an intellectual disability, without that guardianship going through the court system, um, a parent, even a parent, is not able to make necessarily decisions for that person who has uh, what we call diminished capacity and who does have any type of special needs. And, and that then could be for sometimes it's for people that are born with special needs, and then sometimes it may be for people that develop special needs um, through their adult life. Do I understand that as well? You're absolutely right. It can be whether they ha already have a developmental disability or a, a special need um, in childhood, so you can anticipate it and know it's coming, but also if something develops later in life or even as an adult, 
where you do somebody does need to step in and ask for guardianship. It can happen pretty much at any stage of life. It, you know, starts as a child or it's something that can develop an early adulthood where somebody is not necessarily able to make their own decisions for themselves, um, or it could be as an older adult, say, you know, a parent that is having dementia or has been diagnosed with dementia or something where they can no longer make those decisions. So guardianship can really be done at any point in somebody's life. So it could be some kind of a, a diagnosis that starts very early on. It could be something that develops like dementia or, or uh, Huntington's disease or some kind of a thing like that. Or it could be the result of an accident. Maybe someone has some kind of brain injury as a result of an automobile accident or something like that. And then they would be incapable of making decisions. If, if someone in my family had that situation, what would I want to do then? What would be the first steps? Let's say... I don't know, let's say my wife would have a, a tragic accident and would suddenly um, need a guardian appointed. What would that process look like? So in that situation, we would we would always start out with a petition to the court. Um, and the court that you're going to want to petition in is going to be wherever the person who you're trying to get guardianship over lives. You know, so say you live in Kanawha County, but you know, the person you need guardianship over lives in Webster County, you're gonna need to go to Webster County to ask for the court's permission to be a guardian because that's where what we call the protected person uh, resides. So you would start with filing a petition. The One of the great aspects of the West Virginia court system is that they publish forms. The West Virginia Supreme Court publishes all of the necessary forms on their website uh, with directions, with instructions. So you, it really kind of gives you that sense of knowing what you need to file and where to file. So those forms are available through the West Virginia, the Supreme Court's website, and also through Legal Aid's website, you can get access to those forms. Um, but it starts with a petition, which a petition is just how you start kind of any lawsuit in court. And it's it's not it's seen as a lawsuit, but it's a petition for layman's terms. A lawsuit is what people kind of recognize. Um, but you file in court asking the court uh, to appoint you as guardian over the person who needs to be protected. Now, who can file that petition? Can anybody file it? Can can your cousin twice removed file the petition? So the way the law reads, it's any interested person. So anybody who has an interest in being the guardian can file that petition. So it can be a friend, it can be a relative, um, or it could, you know, it can in some certain circumstances actually be DHHR can file for guardianship over a person. And the way that reads, it sounds like it's pretty vague. Let's say I owed the bank some money and I wasn't able to manage my own affairs. Could they file to have a guardian appointed to me to help manage the affairs? So if we're talking more about money and a bank situation where you're not handling your money, that's a same process, but a different term. It's called a conservatorship. Uh, so we have two two terms in the state of West Virginia. One is guardianship. And guardianship is a guardian over the person. So where the person lives, um, kind of what the person does, what, what they eat. Uh, and then we have what we call conservatorship, which is over their money. 
So now if they're just making bad financial decisions, um, not necessarily paying their bills, uh, that's in general not going to rise to the level of, a, of having a conservatorship to manage somebody's money. However, while a bank may be an interested party in the debt, they're not going to be an appropriate entity, and an entity can't be a guardian um, in that sense over or conservator over somebody's money because they are a direct debtor that wouldn't really be considered a person of interest. So the, really the only entity that can be appointed as a guardian or a conservator, it would be like a, a government entity like the Department of Health and Human Resources, the Adult Protective Services or something like that. Is is that correct? That's correct. And if you have a guardian through DHHR, through our Department of Health and Human Resources, they will give you an individual caseworker and an individual person through Adult Protective Services that is your guardian. So it's not just DHHR in general, a person is named. And then if there's any type of situation where that person is either no longer with the department or your care needs to be changed to another person, the department goes through the process of changing the name um, of your of a caseworker of the person who is appointed the guardian. But it's it's never just an entity. It, there is always a person's name attached. So once that petition gets filed, is that all it takes for the court to appoint a guardian or a conservator, or is there another step that happens? There, there are additional steps. So once you file a petition, one of the things you have to do is notice has to be given to other relatives. So if I'm, you know, a daughter trying to get guardianship over my mother, I have to notify my brother and my sister. I would also have to notify uh, a living spouse if there was a living spouse of my mother. Um, so there are other relations that do have to get notified because they may have a may want a say in the guardianship also. They may want to be a co-guardian. They may think you're not the appropriate person to be a guardian and might want to try to you know, fight against that. So you do have to give notice to certain relatives. And then a an attorney is appointed to represent uh, the person who you're trying to get guardianship over, our potential protected person. And that way that their rights and their um, they're protected within their rights and a determination can be made as to whether they do need a guardian. And there's always going to be a hearing. Um, a guardianship is not going to be granted without um, at least having a hearing and having the evidence presented as to why this person does need a guardian or the opposite as to why a person doesn't need a guardian and as to who the appropriate guardian would be. Uh, so there, there are additional steps and the person who you're trying to get guardianship over is involved in all of those steps. They also get notice um, that a petition has been filed for guardianship of them. They have the attorney appointed, so they do have contact with the attorney and they are um, they are invited to be part of the court process. They should be at a hearing. They don't necessarily have to be at a hearing, but it is definitely something they have a right to be present at at any hearing. And then is there any kind of an evaluation by a professional like a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a physician? In most cases, there is a um, a form that a physician or a psychiatrist is, is to fill out certifying that they've, they've done an examination of the person and that a guardianship would be appropriate. Now, there are certain circumstances where you can petition the court to not have that report included from a physician, but that is also something that's taken into consideration by the judge is what your reason is to not have that form from a physician um, 
so they do definitely evaluate the reason to not have it. Um, and if you have it, it does make a stronger case because you do have a medical professional um, saying that there is a reason for this person to have somebody else as their as their decision maker. We talked about the difference between a guardianship and a conservator, basically the guardian the guardian being the person who is making sure that the person is taken care of, the conservator making sure that their estate, their money, their um, their financial well-being is being taken care of. Um, are there qualifications to be a guardian or a conservator? So qualifications, it does have to be a person of interest. It is typically can be a person who's related in a lot of sense. Um, but as long as you are 18, um, and you're able to take care of yourself and you're not a protected person yourself, you can petition to be a guardian. And the court analyzes whether you're an appropriate person to be a guardian. As long as the court deems you an okay person to be a guardian, there's no edu like educational experience that's required. There's no certain job requirements that are required before you're a guardian. However, if you are appointed guardian, there is an educational class that you have to take. It is online. Um, it does have quizzes at the end. And it's just so you understand the full uh, scope of your responsibilities and your duties and the limitations on, on your responsibilities and on your obligations. So the beforehand, there's not really as many qualifications as long as you're over the age of 18 you're not a protected person yourself um, and then the after is where we do a little education uh, after the fact to make sure you know what you're supposed to be doing and to kind of keep people knowing what their scope and what their responsibility is could uh, could someone get a guardianship or a conservatorship over their loved one maybe their their mother or their child if they've been convicted of of a felony there are no necessary bars that if you, you know, have any type of conviction in the past um, that you're not able to be a guardian. So it's, it's not an absolute bar. It is a factor that the court is likely to consider. Um, and, and the court's going to take into consideration what that offense was, who the victim was, if they're, you know, if a family member was a victim, if the person you're trying to to be guardian over was the victim, um, how long ago it was, and and just rehabilitation. You know, if, if the person has worked to rehabilitate from that conviction, um, those are all things that are taken into consideration, but having a conviction is not an all-out bar. Now, let's say um, that, that you're appointed a guardian. What exactly are your responsibilities? You mentioned you have to take a class. What else do you have to do if you're the guardian of a person? So you take a class if you're if you're a conservator of a person, you do an annual report. So a lot of people end up being the guardian and the conservator. So you're over the person themselves and over the person's money, like we talked about earlier. Um, and in those situations, you uh, you have an obligation to do an annual report of how the, that person's money is being spent, any property that might be being disposed of if you're you know selling their property. Um, so you do have an obligation to report to the court annually as to what you're doing and especially with the money. You know, the the conservatorship is a big piece in making sure that money's not being mishandled, it's not being, you know, withered away from a person and that it is being used appropriately for their care and for their their living standards. So there is an annual report that you do have to submit um, and just so the court can have some oversight to know that 
that somebody's not going to be a victim of financial exploitation. And in the in the law, we use the word fiduciary duty. Explain explain to us what does a fiduciary duty? So your fiduciary duty is pretty much your roles and responsibilities. It is you have a duty to not to not do the wrong thing. Um, everybody makes you know maybe bad choices where you thought you were getting a good deal with something. So it's it's a little bit more than that for the to breach what we call breach your fiduciary duty is you have a, a responsibility to to do things properly. Um, and it's your obligation to not mishandle their money or where somebody is even living. Um, so it's your obligation to kind of make sure things are, you know, as they should be. And so you do have a duty to to care and to take care of the money and to make as good of choices as you can um, financially for the person and physically for the person and to not, you know, let the person be neglected or just kind of left alone and never checked on and to make sure that their money is being spent properly. So you don't want to invest all of the money in something you saw on a late night infomercial that was on um, the home shopping club late at night. If it's the money of the person you have conservatorship over, that is probably not going to be the wisest choice. That's what we're going to call a breach of your fiduciary duty is to manage the money properly. Um, now, if you make a bad investment and have things invested throughout multiple um, aspects and one ends up being a bad investment, that's going to be looked at a lot differently than um, you um, you got caught up in in some of these these scams um, that go through frequently and spend somebody else's money on on just a, a scam investment. So you do have the obligation to to kind of guard it um, probably a little bit safer than you might guard your own money because it is the money of somebody else. Now, once you're appointed a guardian or a conservator, could you be sued or be held liable for your actions that you take as a guardian or a conservator? So in general, no. Um, for most things that happen, you don't have personal liability. However, there are instances of if you're, you know, completely neglectful in your responsibilities. Um, so you can, or if you misman, if you breach that fiduciary duty and mismanage somebody's money, you uh, definitely can have a lawsuit against you or be held responsible for paying that money back. But in general, as long as you're not negligent, as long as you're, you know, still doing your best, you're not going to be held personally responsible. As a guardian or a conservator, can you charge money um, from the account of the person for the services that you're providing? So as far as getting any fees for services as the guardian, as long as they're reasonable fees, they can be charged. It is something that you do need to document what the fees are and what, how you accumulated the fees um, and how they accrued, uh, but you can't get reasonable fees. Um, and reasonable is going to be, you know, kind of in the eye of the beholder, um, which is going to be the judge on your annual report. Uh, so any fees that you do charge and that you do um, take from the protected person, you do want to keep very good documentation as to what the fees were for um, and any amount uh, and have a consistent, you know, schedule of amounts for different things. And if you had a question and needed to seek legal advice or professional counsel from an accountant, that would be an, a legitimate expense um, to the protected person as well? If the reason you're seeking that advice, either from an attorney or from a um, 
a financial expert is for the sake of the protected person. You know, those fees that they were charged can be charged to the protected person. Uh, so yes, that would be considered reasonable if you have a consultation about, you know, investments that you've made with the protected person's finances, that can be charged to the that person's, um, they, you can charge fees for something like that, yes. Now, once the guardianship or the conservatorship is entered, it, that's you, you mentioned the filing of annual fees. What happens if I'm appointed as a guardian and I, I don't want to do it anymore or I can't do it anymore or I'm having you know other issues that are preventing me as the guardian from being able to serve in that capacity? What, what happens then? A, a motion can be filed in the court to or petition to modify or terminate the guardianship. So there can be modifications made where you can change either the scope of uh, the guardianship. So you might be um, not have as many responsibilities. You can also file for a co-guardian. So if it's a situation where you can still, um, you think you can handle doing maybe a 50-50 split with another relative or another loved one, you can have a co-guardianship either from the beginning or a modification to a co-guardianship. Um, if you are unable to do it, you can terminate the guardianship. Um, it is recommended if there is somebody who can step into your place for them to be, to include them as, as part of the court process early on if you're looking to terminate, um, if the guardianship is terminated by you because you're no longer able to do it, or um, if your guardian for, passes away, if there's nobody immediately to take place, it is going to end up going to the DHHR, um, but that doesn't mean you, you can't then try to get somebody else who is a loved one to be in that position. And what they don't want to see is gaps in the guardianship. Um, we don't want to have those gaps for that person, have that uncertainty for that person's care and responsibility. Uh, so as long as we have somebody else to kind of step into place, uh, the court will just do the analysis and reevaluate as to modifying or replacing a guardian. Um, and if there, if we are in a situation where there isn't somebody else who can take that role, um, then DHHR and Adult Protective Services can step in and take that role. What about a scenario like, I'll say, days of our lives where someone's in a coma for, you know, um, seven years and then they come out of a coma or they're possessed by a demon for some period of time and the demon is exercised um, and they no longer need a guardian? What steps could be taken then? So there are steps that the protected person can take to terminate a guardianship. You know, so if the guardianship was put in place for a specific reason, then if if the reason that led to the guardianship has kind of ended or come, you know, come to a close, if it's because of mental health concerns and you've gotten treatment and you're on a better path and you've been able to, to treat and manage any type of illness or disability that led to having the guardianship in place, the person can, you as a protected person can also petition the court for termination um, of the guardianship. And so it, it would be a similar process. You would petition the court for it to be terminated. You, you would definitely need to have your reasons. It's always going to be beneficial to have a doctor, physician, uh, psychiatrist to be a part of that process and do a report and have um, a statement as to why they believe that the uh, guardianship is no longer necessary. But it would be, it would end up being a court hearing. Everybody would get, you know, notice that this was happening. So people can make their arguments on either side as to why the term, why the guardianship should be terminated or why it should stay in place. Um, but there is a process to have it terminated. 
Now, are there ways that you can have somebody else make decisions for you that may not involve going to court? Of course. So court is sometimes, you know, what a lot of people want to consider the last resort is having somebody as as a per, more of a permanent decision maker through guardianship. But if there's other decisions that need made, we do have a process of power of attorney. Um, and so the power of attorney process, you don't necess- you don't have to go to court. It's not a a uh, a judge doesn't make a finding that you can't make your own decisions. Um, but there is a a way to have a power of attorney, which gives somebody else the authority to make decisions on your behalf. And they can't override necessarily your decisions, but there are things that they can do on your behalf where you don't necessarily have to be present. So one example would be, you know, if you're if you're buying a home and you and your spouse are on opposite ends of the state for whatever reason, um, and you want to give your spouse power of attorney to sign in your place um, on all the mortgage documents, you know, you you can do that. You can give them power to just do that one specific task, or you can give them power of attorney to make kind of any decision that you would make um, and legally be allowed to make. They would also be legally allowed to make. Now, the granting of a power of attorney, as you mentioned, that is a legal decision that someone has to make. So they would have to have legal capacity to do that. So if you thought your loved one has has gone to the point where they no longer have capacity, then would that still be an option? So in order to sign a power of attorney, it is the person giving that power to somebody else. And in order to legally be able to give that power to somebody else, you do have to be what we call of sound mind. Uh, So you do have to have capacity. So if you are a protected person, you do have a guardian over you. Power of attorney is not a step you can take. Um, So you do have to be what we call, you know, of sound mind to be able to give somebody else the authority to make those decisions in your place. Now, let's say you have someone, as you mentioned, maybe they have a mental health issue and they seek treatment while they're receiving medication. They have capacity, but if they stop taking their medication, they're going to to, to lack that capacity, right? Um, can they enter into a power of attorney at a time that they have those moments of lucidity? So they can, you know, as long as they are of sound mind at the time that they are executing it or signing um, and agreeing to give somebody power of attorney, that's that's um, when we make the analysis as to whether they have the capacity and are of sound mind to make that decision. So it's a really in the moment type of decision. You know, if in the moment they have capacity, they know what they are doing, they understand what they're signing, then we are gonna consider them of sound mind. And the recommendation is in general, as as most attorneys are gonna tell you, is document as to what made you believe they were of sound mind in case something gets kind of questioned in the future. You mentioned if it's a guardianship, you have to go back to court to terminate a, a guardianship. Do you have to do that to terminate a power of attorney? Because there was no court process um, for the power of attorney, it is a lot easier to revoke what we call revoke a power of attorney or terminate a power of attorney. Um, You can just pretty much sign a letter saying that you want to revoke the power of attorney uh, that was signed on this date with this person being the power of attorney. So that is one way is to write a letter, sign it, uh, have it notarized is, is always, you know, an important aspect of that um, and sending it to the person who had power of attorney over you. Um, I recommend sending sending things uh, that are important such as that by certified mail. Um, so you definitely know that the person has received it. Another way you can go is changing your power of attorney. 
so it's kind of it's a whatever came last, whatever was signed most recently is the one that's going to be valid and in effect. So if you don't necessarily you want somebody to have power of attorney, but not the original person, you can just execute a new power of attorney document listing the new person. And part of that document is going to say that you revoke any previous power of attorney documents. Uh, and so once that's signed and properly executed, then the old document is no longer in effect uh, and the new one is what is controlling. Now you mentioned giving that to the person that you have appointed as the power of attorney. Do you recommend giving it to anybody else? Um, maybe banks that may have had a copy of that and, and have thought somebody else could sign checks, anything like that? So definitely anytime you're going to change a power of attorney, any entity that you that may have a copy of that, you're going to want to send a new co a copy of the new power of attorney or a copy of the letter revoking a previous power of attorney. Um, because, it, you know, the, the banks can't really be held too responsible if they didn't know that this person wasn't a power of attorney, because according to their records, that person has a valid power of attorney. So anytime you revoke or change a power of attorney, you're going to want to let any medical providers know that have a previous power of attorney, you know, pharmacy, your bank, um, any of those institutions that may have a copy of your old power of attorney, you're going to want them to definitely have the new one or have a letter of revocation revoking the old power of attorney. Well, Jackie, thank you so much for taking the time. I think this is some very important information. I appreciate you sharing it. And uh, I really uh, think this has been beneficial. Thank you for having me here, Clint. For copies of sample forms for guardianship and conservatorship, visit the West Virginia Supreme Court website at courtswv.gov. For more information on this topic, visit Legal Aid's website at legalaidwv.org. Thank you for listening to this presentation of What's the Law Say?